0: The first cut on this record has been cross format focused for airplay success. The
1: men beat on the drums. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Andy Beckett. We talked about the recent Conservative and Labour Party conferences and whether the supply chain and fuel crises might finally undermine support for Boris Johnson's government. We also chatted about the Labour Party and why Keir Starmer seems to have made so little effort to make political capital out of the government's current difficulties. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books who have lots of excellent titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is Work Without the Worker, Labour in the Age of Platform Capitalism by Phil Jones. We are told that the future of work will be increasingly automated. Algorithms processing massive amounts of information at startling speed will lead us to a new world of effortless labour and a post-work utopia of ever-expanding leisure. But behind the gleaming surface stands millions of workers, often in the global south, manually processing data for a pittance. Work Without the Worker, Labour in the Age of Platform Capitalism by Phil Jones, reveals the brutal truth behind our automated futures and the new world of work. It's out now from Verso Books and one of their October Verso Book Club reading selections. And now to today's interview. Andy Becker is a journalist and historian. His writing has appeared in The Guardian, The London Review of Books, and The New York Times magazine, amongst other venues. He's the author of When the Lights Went Out, Britain in the 70s, Pinochet in Piccadilly, Britain and Chile's Hidden History, and Promised You a Miracle, Why 1980-82 Made Modern Britain. If you'd like to hear the extended hour-length version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Unfortunately, we had some technical problems during the recording of today's interview. As you'll hear, the sound quality at Andy's end is very good for the first 40 minutes or so, but then we had to switch to recording via his phone with obviously somewhat less good audio results. But hopefully it's still worth sticking with. So, Andy, you've been in attendance at both this year's Labour Party and Conservative Party conferences. We'll come on to Labour in a bit, but first on the Tory conference. I imagine very few PTO listeners, if any, will have ever attended. So could you just say something on, on what it's like as, as an experience? What's the, the format and the mood and, the, you know, the, the general atmosphere? And also just your impression of the composition of the party attendees as
0: well? What it's like is, to some extent, what you'd expect if you're not a conservative. So there are lots of young sort of Tory boys in suits, some of them very young. There are older men with kind of quite old-fashioned haircuts, that sort of slicked back hair that people had in the sort of 30s and 40s. You still see people like that there. There's a lot of dark blue suits No one's very kind of fashionable. So there's lots of people wearing kind of pointy black shoes. Lots of people wearing very tight clothes, which I assume is a sort of something vaguely to do with hunting. Um, (laughs) So some of it is quite traditional in that way. It's a bit more diverse than it used to be kind of racially, which is interesting. And the mood of it is this year very, very kind of perky. I, I thought people seemed... Like they couldn't quite believe their luck. That seemed to be the sort of general atmosphere of the mm. politicians and also of the the delegates and the sort of MPs you saw milling around. It's almost that we can't quite believe we're in such a strong position, given you know how long we've been in power and you know, sotto voce, how tricky things have been recently.
1: Yeah, well, I, I was I was going to say. I mean, given the the fuel crisis and, and the supply chain crisis that that Britain's experiencing at the moment, you might think there would be a bit more, not hostility, but a, a little bit more criticism directed towards Boris Johnson, but, but you didn't see any of that?
0: No, not really, no. I mean, there's sort of euphemistic sort of references every now and again, including in Boris Johnson's speech to sort of, you know, disruption at the moment or, you know, tensions at the moment, but even hardly any of those, really. And then there's sort of tacit criticism of him from the more kind of free market people who say things about, you know, we're a low-tax party or you know, we're an enterprise party and emphasise that people like Liz hmm. Truss and Jacob Rees-Mogg, there's sort of not exactly direct criticisms, but there's kind of lots of references to the more libertarian end of conservatism floating around still. Yeah, there's a, there's a bit of tension there, but it's not explicit.
1: And how long have you been going to conservative party conferences?
0: I first one I went to was in the late 90s when um, there was a very interesting and strange fringe event I went to where Margaret Thatcher was speaking in favour of the release of General Pinochet in Blackpool. (laughs) And I remember that as a kind of strange, ghoulish experience. So I haven't been to every single one since then, but yeah, I've probably been to, to more than you should.
1: On Boris Johnson and his conference speech, so a lot of people have pointed out that the speech was was peak Johnsonism, very light on detail, full of puns and and, and jokes, intensely boosterish and optimistic about Britain's prospects in in spite of uh, the current current difficulties. So far, it's a it's a style of political communication that has served him pretty well, and and his experience at the Foreign Office under the Theresa May government, where he seemed to for a time to attempt to operate as a more conventional politician and was perceived to have really failed in that job has maybe reinforced that propensity for showmanship and, and bluster. But given the scale of the, of the crisis facing the country at the moment, do you think he's, he's slipped into outright hubris at this stage and that some kind of political comeuppance is in, is in fact likely?
0: I think there was something quite hubristic about the speech. I mean, the proportion of jokes and of kind of wordplay was even higher than you would normally get from him. And some of the kind of riffs took quite a lot of time to to kind of unfurl. And the speech was quite short. So you sort of think, why is he making a joke about beavers for two minutes out of the 40 <laughs> minutes when he didn't even mention, for example, the climate emergency until about 30 minutes in? So, yeah, it did feel quite hubristic. It was almost kind of daring people, you know, almost daring to say let's see quite how light I can be because I'm so powerful. I can almost get away with saying anything and I'm just going to say it. I had that air Mm. about it. I'm really wary of saying that the Conservatives are going to get their comeuppance because in The Guardian where I write, a great proportion of the columns, including quite a lot written by me, could be summarised as saying, at some point they'll get their comeuppance. But it does feel... A bit like there's a kind of law of gravity being defied here politically, that that so many things are going so badly. And the government is not quite as popular as it maybe thinks it is. I mean, their poll ratings have been slipping a bit, they're now sort of high thirties, which is decent for midterm, but it's not kind of outstanding. And there's a lot of talk about Johnson being impregnable. I mean, at this stage in the Blair government, the first Blair government or the second, Blair would have been at probably 50 percent in the polls, not 37, 38. And Blair's majority was much, much bigger. And I think some of the talk of it being a sort of landslide majority is a bit deceptive. I think historically a majority of 80 or 82 is sort of solid. It's not huge. So I wonder whether the media and the Conservatives kind of between them have sort of created an impression that the Conservatives are in a sort of position of Blair-like strength or Thatcher-like strength, when I'm not quite sure that they are.
1: And do you think that the sense of impotence and despair that there is on, on the left about this seemingly very solid Tory voting bloc is to do with the fact that we tend to look at, at the Conservative government and say, well, they've been in, you know, they've been in power for, for more than a decade. But in fact, Johnson's not been in power very long himself, only a couple of years. And given his insurgent populist style the way the party effectively cannibalised the UKIP vote, it's in fact better to think of the Johnson government as relatively new and distinct from those previous Tory governments because it doesn't seem really almost as if the public identifies Johnson with the party of David Cameron or or even Theresa May and that rather he's still seen as this anti-establishment politician despite being the incumbent.
0: I think he's certainly seen that way by the 40-odd percent of the public that support the Conservatives. I think it's been a real failing of Labour under Keir Starmer, and I think to an extent under Jeremy Corbyn as well, to not associate them sufficiently closely with things like austerity and lots of things that Cameron and May did that were, if you're on the left, pretty disastrous. Jeremy Corbyn didn't want to do personal attacks, and I think that was kind of admirable, but I think that was also fatal in 2019, because there was very little talk in the Labour campaign literature in 2019 about that the long period of Conservative rule and quite how badly it had gone, even on its own terms. So. I think there is that sense of it's a new government and obviously that's something that johnson really pushes i think also there's i would argue an exaggerated sense of how strong the government's position is because we're not used to conservative governments with decent majorities this is the first one since 87 in a way we're used to the tories being in power but only quite precariously under cameron and under may and So when they get a majority of 80, we sort of overreact a bit, I would argue. Um, A majority of 80 where a lot of the seats are marginals and are not historically conservative seats is maybe not that impregnable.
1: From the outside, it seemed very striking how much the conference seemed to be focused on Johnson. Rishi Sunak's speech was was a bit of a damp squib perhaps Pretty Patel's seemed to be the only really notable one aside from from Johnson and all the kind of imagery at the start of Johnson's speech was all about him. There was very little sense of him leading a cabinet particularly. Do you think his dominance at the conference reflects his, his vanity and, and perhaps insecurity as well? Or do you think it's a deliberate strategy that, that's part of that effort to encourage voters to think in terms of voting for Boris Johnson rather than voting for the Conservative Party?
0: I think there's definitely some vanity there, It was really striking during his speech that when he said something that led to a lot of applause, he didn't just let the applause kind of run its course. He would just kind of carry on talking and you couldn't really hear what he was saying. And it was almost like he was so bound up in his own delivery that he couldn't even really notice what was going on in the hall other than that there was Mm -hmm. vague approval. So I think there is a sort of vanity and there's a sort of narcissism about how he operates. But I think you're right, there's a, there's a definite calculation that being the Boris Johnson party is more popular than being the Conservative party, and I think polling and focus groups would bear that out, so that they're going in that direction.
1: As we've already touched on a little bit, the UK is facing a, a very bleak winter with the fuel shortages, the supply chain crisis that looks likely to cause shortages for consumers over the Christmas period. Then there's the threat of a surge in COVID cases at the same time as the cold and flu season. And we were also speaking a couple of days after the cut in universal credit. The historical comparison that's most frequently being reached for in this situation is one that's usually raised to attack the Labour Party, which is the so-called winter of discontent of 1978-79, which preceded Labour's defeat at the polls to Margaret Thatcher. In an article you wrote for The Guardian, you argued that the crisis facing the country and and the government today is unlikely to erode Conservative support, or at least not enough to enable Labour to form a government at the next election. Can you explain why you don't think the crisis will be fatal for for Johnson, and and also what you think are the correct lessons to take from the winter of discontent?
0: I guess my argument would be that the winter of discontent was about a government um, which was not that powerful, finally failing because Hmm. it couldn't anymore maintain this kind of partnership with the unions that it had done for the last few years. So it's about a government with a modest amount of power being kind of found out in a crisis, if you like. And I think this crisis is different because it's about a government that's got too much power and has acted in a sort of hubristic way. It's been rather lazy about addressing the supply chain crisis, which, as we now know, was kind of building up all through the summer. So I think the kind of The relative strengths of the two governments are different. I think also the press plays a huge part in this, that in the winter of discontent that the right-wing press famously sort of monstered the government and did a huge amount to sort of amplify what was not necessarily a huge level of crisis in in Britain as a whole, but they made it look Mm. like there were piles of rubbish everywhere and so on. Whereas now, obviously, those same newspapers are often keen to kind of play down the extent of crisis there'll be individual days where the daily mail will tell the government to get a grip or say there's you know fuel is is in chaos but it's not an absolutely relentless kind of campaign of amplifying the crisis so i think that's something
1: yeah i mean it's just on that i mean it's, it's striking reading some of the foreign press which seems altogether more apocalyptic in the way it's described than than the, the press here
0: Yeah, exactly. I think that's right. So I think the balance of power in the press obviously favours a Conservative government getting things wrong. I think that's a difference. I mean, I think that the crisis now is eroding government support a bit. I don't think it'd be fair to say it's not doing any damage, and I wouldn't want to say that there's no chance of it sort of destroying the government. But I think it seems less dangerous for them. And also, in 1978 79, you had an opposition under Margaret Thatcher which was ready to pounce, if you like, that she had a line, which was essentially, you the ruling of the country and I will sort them out, which was kind of oven ready. And as soon as the winter of discontent happened, she deployed that line. And you can say the logic of her argument was flawed or disgraceful, but it was a powerful argument to make. Whereas I think Labour now, although they've got a kind of critique of, of what Johnson's getting wrong, they don't have a sort of alternative vision that's as focused as Thatcher had. So I think the winter of discontent, as I wrote in The Guardian, is as much about people going towards the Conservatives as it is abandoning Labour. And something that's always a fascinating fact about 79 election is Labour actually got more votes in the 79 election than they did in the 74 Mm. election. So if you look at what happened with the vote then, it was more about Liberal voters leaving the Liberals for the Tories. So I think it's as much about people switching to the alternative as it is about people abandoning the government that's in place during a crisis. That's the key dynamic. And I don't really see that dynamic happening very much now. Labour's support has been pretty steady throughout this kind of period of turmoil. It hasn't gone up much.
1: Just going back to Boris Johnson's speech, he said in the speech that Britain under the Conservatives is moving towards a high-wage, high-skill, high-productivity economy that the people of this country need and deserve, in which everyone can take pride in their work and the quality of their work. He's blamed immigration and, and membership of the EU for, for low wages rather than, of course, the previous Tory policy for the fact of, of of this low-wage economy that we have. Do you think Johnson's running the risk of creating unmanageable expectations since it's it seems pretty unlikely that a high-wage economy is possible with Britain's very rentierised and financialised economic model And any increases in wages that that may occur in certain sectors, it's pretty likely that those will be offset by price rises elsewhere that will will hurt consumers. So do you think this is perhaps an effective short-term strategy, but one that is likely to store up trouble for tomorrow?
0: Yeah, I think it feels like, in the short term, quite a clever bit of political positioning, sort of throwing labour off balance. As you say, it's actually a really difficult thing to pull off, It's effectively arguing for Britain to have a kind of German-style economy. And I think, as you're implying, that would take a long time to create, given the two countries and their histories and cultures are really different. And I'd also argue that you're trying to create a kind of German-style economy while the donors for your party and a lot of the people that vote for you are um, not social democratic in outlook. So you're trying to create kind of social democracy without social democratic interests behind it. And I Mm. think that's a really hard thing to pull off. One of the things that came up at the conference a lot was they said that they would, in inverted commas, fix the broken property market. But property developers have done very well out of the broken property market and they donate very heavily to the Conservatives. So are the government really going to change the housing market in ways that hurt those companies i'm not sure that they will i mean on, on that what was your sense from from the conference do, do
1: you think the business just regards this as mood music as, as stuff that's targeted at the so-called red wall or is there any real anxiety about a, sh- a shift in this in this direction because you know we have this very strange phenomenon of, of johnson and sunak effectively saying that wage rises will fuel productivity typically a, a very much a left-wing argument
0: my impression is that some people in the business are increasingly sort of perplexed and bewildered and are a bit worried because Johnson famously said some quite robust things about business back you know, in, in the Brexit campaign period. So yeah, we're not Ofcom regulated here. Sorry. Yeah, okay. Yeah, just checking. So, yeah, I think they are a bit baffled. I suppose one way in which it's quite a typical johnsonian move is is basically saying there's a problem and it's not our fault it's someone else's fault so it's not the fault of these conservative governments that have run britain for Mm. three quarters of the time since thatcher it's the fault of business that we have a sort of low wage low productivity economy so it's sort of evading that responsibility quite neatly but i do think it is is storing up some expectations that are going to be quite difficult to fulfill i mean sometimes i think what Johnson does is he just moves through these different left of center tropes, leveling up. Um, Now it's high wages, and each one sort of runs its course for a bit and and works as a bit of positioning, but it's not necessarily a serious policy goal. I went to an event about leveling up just before Johnson's speech, where Ben Houchen, a conservative um, local government leader who's much touted, and Neil Mm -hmm. O'Brien, who's a clever conservative MP, who's supposedly the brains behind leveling up, were both speaking. And they were both quite interesting and there were literally 30 people there and most of them were just looking at their phones and someone was actually asleep. And I thought these are actually the two people on stage who are meant to make levelling up work. And yet nobody at this conference is interested in hearing what they've got to say. And I thought that was very telling. Is there a danger that, although the levelling up agenda will
1: likely turn out to amount to very little, that because there is this sense that Johnson is, is, is an insurgent politician, that he's different from previous Conservatives, and that we're only relatively recently, has, has Brexit occurred, that there is this perhaps an acceptance of short-term pain with the expectation that at some time down the road, the Tories will indeed be able to deliver this high-wage economy?
0: Yeah, I think there is that danger. I think there's a proportion of the public that do still kind of believe in miracles. I think it's the same people that believed in Brexit and still believe in Brexit, even though it hasn't gone that well, even on its own terms so far. There's a kind of constituency, I don't know, 35, 40% of the electorate, who are ready to hear Boris Johnson make big claims, and they don't just sort of laugh them out of court. And I think that is a real problem for anyone on the left, that there's that group who, at least when the Conservatives are doing it, will will believe big promises for quite a long time, even when there's not much evidence of them actually happening. And do you think those people also actually don't necessarily
1: have that much skin in the game? You know, if we're talking about homeowning pensioners, for instance, it's not crucial to them, perhaps, for these promises to transpire. They may like it too, they may may be very attached to to the idea of British success story in terms of the economy and so on, but it's not really going to hurt them one way or the other that much.
0: I think that's a really important point i think a lot of the rise of of the kind of populist right in britain in the last five or six years can be explained by voters who as you say are often retired who often live in in small towns or in villages and essentially they're they're kind of voting according to a sort of symbolic uh, sort. Of, you know what's happening to symbols so during brexit those people were very exercised about immigration even though they generally lived in areas with very few immigrants And they're now very exercised about the nature of work in Britain, even though they themselves don't work. And of course, you know, who's great at at kind of symbolic warfare? It's the tabloids. And it's a very sort of boring, old fashioned explanation, but. I think the ability of Johnson and the sort of symbiosis with the tabloids to essentially just keep this sort of symbolic warfare going on all these issues, speaking really vividly to people who aren't materially involved, I think is incredibly important. I mean, you hear so many things about the working class from voters who aren't themselves working and who don't really have any idea at all of what the modern working class is like, which is sort of urban, multiracial, et cetera, et cetera. So... I think if you're not a Conservative, the worry is that that kind of symbolic sort of political discourse can be kept going for a long time before material reality has to intrude.
1: On another aspect of Johnson's speech, so he spent quite a lot of time ridiculing Keir Starmer. I think on the left, the general perception, and I would include myself in this, is is that Starmer is pretty ineffectual and that the Tories are not afraid of him. If that's the case, or uh, maybe you don't think it is the case, but but why do you think Johnson was paying so much attention to to Starmer? Are they afraid of him, or is
0: this just what Conservative leaders do? It's interesting, because in his speech, he didn't actually mention Labour or Starmer for about 20 minutes. And given that the speech was only about 40 minutes, I thought that was quite late in the speech to start talking about the enemy. So that suggests a certain kind of confidence, a certain kind of contempt for Labour. But as you say, he did talk about Starmer for a while, So I think maybe there's a kind of double-edged view of Starmer that on the one hand, they think he's a bit, you know, six out of 10 at best. But I went to a fringe presentation by a pollster about red wall voters and blue wall voters. And one thing that was quite interesting that he said right near the end, which people didn't really take in, was that in his view, Labour have got a lot more room for expansion electorally than the Conservatives. That essentially everyone who's gonna vote Conservative is already voting Conservative but a lot of people at the moment say they're going to vote Green and quite a lot of people are going to vote Liberal Democrat. So at least potentially, this pollster argued, Labour could eat into the other left of centre parties, whereas the Conservatives haven't really got anywhere extra to get voters from. Now, I'm not sure if I quite agree with that analysis, but I think there's a bit of worry here and there that if Labour got their act together, then they could maybe pose more of a threat. But as for Starmer himself, I think there's a kind of contempt for Starmer. But there's also contempt for Corbyn and everything that Corbyn represented. And one thing that really struck me in conferences, there was a profound incuriosity about what's going on on the left. So when people talk about people on the left, they just reach for stereotypes, which are kind of Thatcher era stereotypes um, about the loony left and so on. And there's no awareness expressed about how the left has been through all these different... Changes. some of them producing quite interesting policy ideas in the last five or six years, you know, under McDonnell, under Corbyn, under Ed Miliband to a degree, even under Starmer now, I think the left, there's a certain kind of, for all the left's problems in Labour, there's still quite a lot of ideas around. When I went to Labour conference, you thought there's quite a lot of ideas around here. There's quite a lot of quite clever, quite young people who look like regular Britain here. And yet the Conservatives seem to have no interest in what Labour are up to and I think if you're a really dominant government you keep quite a close eye on what the opposition are up to whereas I think the conservatives almost can't be bothered they think they're so safe they don't need to worry.
1: One very interesting point I thought you made about Johnson's popularity was that when in power since the 1980s the Tories haven't really shrunk the state they have as you've written shrunk people's expectations of what they can expect from the state could you talk about that point a little bit and the challenge it poses for Labour?
0: I think particularly since 2010, since David Cameron got elected, I think the public have got used to the idea that the state makes blunders. And I think that's quite helpful because it almost sort of normalises state failure. I mean, I think that the performance of the British state, particularly last year and the first half of this year during COVID was pretty catastrophic. And yet I think people weren't, that outraged anecdotally sort of almost expected that and um, partly because the state has been so sort of stripped back through austerities so there just aren't enough civil servants and so on I think I, I'm not saying all civil servants are fools there's just not enough of them at all so I think that has helped so I think under Johnson. Government messes up almost once every three or four weeks in quite a severe way I mean that the airlift from Afghanistan which he was trying to repackage as a great triumph Would seemed utterly chaotic only sort of six weeks ago or so and yet we've sort of almost forgotten about it already I've almost forgotten Mm. about it. I think that's quite helpful if you're kind of incompetent government for incompetence to be seen as the norm I mean, I suppose one puzzle is that When Blair was in power Even though lots of things he did were things I didn't agree with I think government was relatively competent quite a lot of the time, but maybe that was the sort of exception that proves the rule. But people seem to have forgotten that. And maybe that's another problem that Labour have, that they can't give a convincing account of what life was like under the last Labour government, which I think was, the last Labour government was was very disappointing in lots of ways and made some huge mistakes. But day-to-day administration, even of things like regeneration in the north of England, was actually relatively well done. And yet that's been utterly forgotten. People will tell you straight-faced in the northeast of England, Labour never did anything for them. And those are all places that I went to in the 90s with Blair and Brown. And Labour were constantly spending money in those places and opening new things. And certainly somewhere like Newcastle was regenerated a great deal as a result of kind of Labour money and sort of dynamism and political leverage um, in the 90s and the early noughties. So We've forgotten about the relatively competent period under Blair. And then mm. either side of that, the major government and then the Conservative government since 2010 have been fairly accident prone. And I think that's quite helpful if you're accident prone like Johnson. In terms of hostility to Labour in places like the, the North East,
1: is a lot of that around local government? That Although obviously Labour haven't been in office in Westminster for a long time, they have been running councils elsewhere for, for a very long time.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really important point. So Labour is seen as the kind of establishment locally. I think that's right. And obviously one of the clever things about austerity politically was that it devolved a lot of the kind of pain, you know, this sort of distribution of pain was done by councils, mm-hmm. which obviously cut more than any other part of the state. So people who, you know, like most people are not massively interested in politics, blame the council for, you know, the streets being filthy rather than the central government cutting the council's grants. So I think that's exactly right.
1: On Rishi Sunak, in his speech, he seemed to be signalling a pretty tough budget this month, potentially. He declared that excessive public borrowing is immoral and offered the prospect of, of future tax cuts as well, in spite of, of course, of the, of the recent increase in national insurance contributions. Do you think this was mostly just a sop to the party faithful, or, or do you think a return to austerity to some extent is, in fact, possible?
0: I think it's quite hard to read. It feels to me like an argument to some extent, it's probably still going on within the government. I mean, someone said yeah. to me after Johnson's speech, when I was complaining to them about how there'd been no policy in it, they said, well, we've got all these announcements coming in a few weeks' time. That made me think, well, but if you had the announcements ready, you'd be announcing them at party conference, because that's when the public pays attention. Most members of the public are not going to be tuning in when it's the budget or when it's the spending review. That That's a more specialist audience. So it feels to me like that argument about whether the state stays quite big after COVID or whether it gets cut back quite quickly is still going on. And and I suspect Johnson himself hasn't even decided because sometimes he sounds quite keen on the big state and other times he sounds quite keen on austerity. So I think it's really quite hard to predict, but it did feel at the conference like there's quite a lot of pressure from people like Sunak and Liz Truss to kind of push back to say, look, remember, we are essentially a small state tax cutting party and that's really what we believe in deep down and and I think there is quite a lot of a there is a push in that direction and in Sunak's kind of statements as chancellor even though he's given away a lot of money whenever he gets a chance to talk about his philosophy he sounds quite Thatcherite and without being too ad hominem I do think his immense wealth makes him rather like one of the Cameron generation I always felt a lot of the Cameron government were individually wealthy Hadn't had many dealings with the state themselves because their kids have probably been privately educated, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The state was quite remote to them, and I think Sunak gives off the same aura of this kind of, you know, people from the one percent who really don't use the state much, not even the NHS necessarily, and so they don't necessarily have a feel for for quite how explosive kind of cutting back the state can be.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it seemed very telling with the Cameron government that George Osborne's nickname was. Oik, because, you know, he'd been to, I think it was at St Paul's, like, you know, a, a less prestigious public school than some of the other members of, of the Tory cabinet who you know been to Eton and, and other places like that.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and I do think it's a thing, isn't it, that, that the wealthy have seceded more and more from mainstream life. And mainstream life for most people in Britain, even people who are middle class, involves a lot of connections with the state, a lot of dealing with bureaucracy, with benefits, with state education, you know, the NHS, you know, etc. That's what ordinary citizens do a huge amount of the time. But I don't think that the 1% or necessarily maybe even the 10% do that much of that. And I would see Sunak, you know, although obviously he came from a background that's not that grand. He is one of the wealthiest MPs in history now through marriage. And very much, you know, if you look at what he wears and his whole kind of aura is he's like a kind of politician. He's much, maybe a bit nicer on the surface, but he's like a kind of, you know, succession era politician. That's what his suits and his hoodies and so on tell you. And I think that there's a kind of slightly cavalier attitude toward cutting the state from -hmm. people like him that, that reminds me of the sort of Osborne Cameron crowd.
1: Do you think for that reason we might come to see Sunak as, as one of the last figures of, of that kind in the Conservative Cabinet? Because is one way to think about it that Johnson right now is, is perhaps in a similar position to Thatcher in her first Cabinet when she was surrounded by the so-called wets who were associated with the post-war consensus and were uncomfortable with the Thatcherite agenda? And perhaps although Johnson is, is, is more open to the idea of a greater state
0: intervention, he's surrounded by a lot of people who aren't. I think that's a really interesting comparison. I think I think that's probably right. It feels like in the cabinet and in the party generally, there's a lot of people who are pretty keen still on the free market, deregulation, you know, a, a relatively small state. I mean, not a small state when it comes to things like law and order or defence mm-hmm. necessarily, but but on the, in the economy. I think that feels like a lot of people are still there. I think the other thing I often think is that, and I'd include Johnson in this, that conservatives that are slightly breaking with that, that tri orthodoxy haven 't necessarily been thinking about it for that long, so their critique yeah. of what 's wrong with capitalism now or with wages can sometimes if you 're from the left feel a bit like baby steps almost like they've finally realized that Britain has a low wage economy or has insufficient levels of investment so I sometimes think that unlike the Thatcherites, who had, they were in the minority early on, but they had a big body of theory and pamphleteering and everything behind them and lots of intellectual heft, I think they're kind of Tories who are on the sort of the, the Johnson side, they don't necessarily have that much knowledge yet. I'm sounding very patronising, but I think it's just in curiosity on their part that they haven't thought that much about what's wrong with the status quo economically. Yeah, I I mean, that
1: sounds right. It doesn't seem like they have any kind of ideological hinterland right now that you know, in the way the Thatcherites did that you know all the stuff the Adam Smith Institute was were putting out and all the other neoliberal think tanks.
0: Yeah it doesn't exactly because I sort of spend probably an unhealthy amount of time sort of following what those think tanks are up to now so I'm always thinking where are the new ideas and I went to the Conservative Conference in some ways quite excited because I thought I'm going to go along I'll go to lots of fringe events and I'll find out what's going on and what are the ideas behind what Johnson's doing and I was a bit disappointed there wasn't that much intellectual kind of meat in these sessions. Whereas at the Labour conference, even though the party is at a low ebb, it felt like, you know, quite a lot of sessions you go to, like, you know, someone would say something and you think, I've never never thought of that before, or that's a totally new fact, that's really interesting. And it felt like the Conservative conference was quite lightweight in terms of policy formation and ideas. And I think if you had been to the Conservative Party conference in 1981, it would have seemed very different. You would have had a yeah. lot of very clever <laughs> right-wing people throwing concepts around in a way that might be appalling, but was intellectually quite you know, dynamic. Let's move on to the Labour Party conference then.
1: So you also attended that conference, which has been described by some long-time attendees as the most fractious in Labour Party history. How did you find it? I did find
0: it quite a strange kind of conference. It felt like it wasn't exactly directionless, but it felt like there were a lot of different forces pulling in different directions at once. So obviously the whole kind of circulating sort of gossip about who might be the next leader, but also you'd go to some events and you felt there's a really strong residue of of Corbyn here. There's lots of ideas still around, particularly on the economic side or on the environmental side, that were quite radical, quite interesting they were floating around, but then you go to other events and it was this very, very kind of cautious, sort of Starmer style stuff about security and family. And it always feels like all those currents are flowing at once in the party. And the overall mm. effect is a party without it hasn't got much overall direction. But I think it would be a mistake to say there's nothing going on internally. I think there's all kinds of interesting ideas around. I think even Starmer, I'm not a fan particularly, but I think that. In his speech and in his long essay, there's kind of an attempt to say, let's do a modern version of Blairism, but for a much more, a a much darker world. So let's talk about changing the economy a lot more than Blair would have done. Let's talk about security a lot more because the world's much scarier. Even in Starmer's part of the party, they're trying to create something new. I don't think it's really working, but I don't think it's just complete sort of stasis. On his speech and the pamphlet that, that you referenced, do you have any
1: further thoughts on that and how the speech was? I mean, it, it was—it seems to be pretty well received by centrist journalists. Uh, even some on the left were not so critical, or not as critical as one, as one might imagine.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of centrists were sort of pre-programmed to just praise it because they're kind of pre-programmed to praise anything Stormer does, even if it doesn't appear to be working. But I think there are, yeah, people on the left, not include myself. You know, we we wanted at least to give Stormer the benefit of the doubt at the beginning. And although we might be becoming quite disillusioned quite rapidly, we're still sort of on the lookout for for things that he's proposing that might be a bit more radical than centrism. And I think Labour's big sort of offer on you know environmental investment. That's a big kind of Corbyn-scale policy that's basically almost been copied out of the 2019 manifesto. So that's still there. Starmer didn't talk about this as much, but he does talk about this a lot in other contexts. I think Labour's offer on kind of much stronger workplace rights is, yeah, it ought not to be radical. It ought to be just what any decent society has, but it's, yeah. it's expanding workplace rights a lot more than Blair would have done. And I think Starmer's much more pro-trade union than Blair would have been. He's much warmer about union representation. So I think there's some recognition from Starmer that we're not in the world of 97 and that Labour, at least on some issues, has to be a bit more left of centre than it would have been in 97. But I think the problem is that's all mixed in with a whole load of stuff which is very Blairite, or maybe even to the right of Blair, about patriotism, family, community, which to me is very small-c conservative and also I don't think it's even really cutting through. Um, At the Conservative Mm -hmm. conference, there was no sense that they were worried that Starmer was sounding quite socially conservative. They would still caricature him as a sort of stupid liberal lefty from North London, even though he's actually trying terribly hard not to sound like a liberal lefty from North London. Going
1: back to the supply chain crisis and and the fuel crisis and so on, Starmer seems to have been relatively reluctant to take advantage and to try and make political capital. In a recent article, James Meadway pointed out that perhaps a more opportunistic leader might have taken a leaf out of Johnson's book and and maybe got on the high-vis jacket and gone out to talk to hauliers and and lorry drivers and ordinary motorists. Why do you think he's been reluctant to try and make more effort to benefit from the crisis?
0: My assumption is that he's being advised that he ought to be doing this thing called constructive opposition, which is also Hmm. what he's done during the pandemic. And I think that I think whenever there's a national crisis, it's really hard for the opposition because you either back the government and then they take all the credit or you don't and then you're unpatriotic. So it's a difficult situation. But I think constructive opposition is often really, really dangerous, um, particularly for Labour. And I think I'm surprised that Starmer hasn't been more aggressive on the supply chain crisis because... During the pandemic, he tried constructive opposition and it didn't work politically. And, and yet he seems not to have learned that lesson. It reminds me of Michael Foote supporting Margaret Thatcher during the Falklands War, that that was just a disastrous decision, in my view. I mean, philosophically, but also strategically. And you really felt at the Conservative Party conference that they're utterly ruthless about this, that, that Starmer thinks he's being constructive, but actually they constantly describe him as unpatriotic and undermining the government so he doesn't even get any credit for having been constructive in fact he he gets caricatured as unpatriotic anyway so why not just be in inverted commas unpatriotic and take the risk of being really tough and this might be a very unfashionable thing to say but I think had Corbyn been leader during the pandemic I think you would have seen a lot more anger from Labour and a lot more kind of emotional empathy with victims and I think that might have been quite effective, even though Corbyn in other ways was obviously very limited. And if you look at Thatcher, going back to her in The Winter of Discontent, and you see the footage of her on TV, she looks absolutely furious and it's very, very effective because she just kind of channels the rage that people that hated unions were feeling then. And I think Starmer hasn't, you know, he makes lots of individually strong points about the government being incompetent and so on and lazy. But he doesn't give you a sort of emotional sense of kind of outrage at the state of the country, I don't think. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a real problem for Labour. And Angela Rayner gives that a bit more, but then obviously she's in quite a kind of secondary role. I suppose as well as as echoing
1: public unhappiness, it it also gives people licence to adopt a more adversarial position vis-à-vis the government, right?
0: What do you mean exactly?
1: that if you see Labour opposing and and seeming angry and and outraged and fiercely making points, that you're more likely to think, oh, actually, yeah, they've got a point. Yeah. And and maybe I myself am, am more angry than I thought I was, perhaps.
0: Yeah, no, sorry. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. I think that's right, that the weird feeling of kind of numbness that people have, even on the left, during all this period of kind of spectacular sort of mismanagement by the government. I think maybe that's right, that we're not getting a sort of emotional lead from Labour about this. And... I think that that is a problem. He's not, Starmer's not representing kind of indignation and anger in the way that, that, yeah, that we might want.
1: You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll other to sign up. Thanks for listening.